So welcome back, everyone. I am Lynn Gilliland. This is Lessons from Leaders, and this podcast is hosted both by Humentum and LG Consulting. And today I have Will Warshower, who's my new best friend. Um, on our, we had an earlier call that we talked about. Well, we were just talking about what about Will, and there are so many areas Will of overlap with you, which we're going to get in today. But it was. Uh, we had such a great earlier conversation. I know this is going to be a really interesting one today. So welcome, Will. Thanks. Great to be here, Lynn. And just to start with, let's talk about defining moments in your leadership. So when you think about your, your, I, I don't know, it doesn't even have to be a per- professional, but what for you are like defining moments that really shaped your leadership, how you show up today or the way that you think about things? Yeah, it's a great question. And a couple of things pop into my mind. Um, after I graduated from college, I joined the Peace Corps and I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Sierra Leone in West Africa. I lived in a small village in the north with no electricity, no running water. It was uh, a very formative experience. But um, as a part of that, um, I uh, I got to got friendly with a kid. He was probably 10 or 11 years old in my village, a little boy named Bolo. And all of us know kids like this. He was uh, had a sparkle, a twinkle in his eye. He was very bright. He was very sharp, uh, witty, and just charming. And he, he and I were hanging out a lot together. And at some point, it hit me like a ton of bricks. So I'm 21, and Bolo is 11. And it hit me that at that time, life expectancy in Sierra Leone was about 40 years old. Uh, he was unlikely to ever go more than, I don't know, probably 10 or 20 miles away from the village where he was living. And um, I had been born to a doctor in, in Virginia and had every opportunity in my life. And his opportunities were so few. And it was just the cosmic roulette wheel that had me start my life in a particular place and him in another that made our circumstances so different. It was clear as a bell to me that if he had been born in my circumstances, he would have had an Ivy League education and done everything that he wanted to do. Um, And so that really is one of the things that has crystallized and motivated me to have a career working in international development. And uh, one of the ways I talk about TechnoSurf sometimes is that we are in the business of providing opportunity to people. Uh, Nick Kristof famously said that uh, intelligence is universally distributed around the world, but opportunity is not. And boy, is he right about that. And uh, so I think to this day quite often about Bolo and uh, uh, feel happy to be able to provide opportunities to people like him around the world. Um, The other sort of moment that comes to mind when I hear your question is more of a work moment, which was... uh, in a job I was doing at another organization in Pakistan. And uh, we were behind schedule and things weren't going well. And I was really pressuring the team that I was working with there to go faster and work harder and get things done. And it really wasn't working. And I was super, super frustrated and uh, kind of felt like I was banging my head against a wall. And another issue, an even more sort of complicated issue came up And the team sort of had an attachment to that issue and owned that issue. And these same people who I couldn't get to do good quality work and who I couldn't get to work hard suddenly were staying in the office till 11 o'clock at night doing whatever they needed to do to get this thing addressed. And it was such a light bulb moment for me, the exact same people behaving entirely differently. And it was the beginning of a 
journey in, in trying to get smarter about adaptive management, trying to understand what different people needed from me and didn't need from me, uh, and how I could sort of unlock their potential by uh, leading and managing in, in, in different ways. So those are a couple of important moments in, in my life and my career. What I like about both of them, well, one like sets you up on on your path, right? Your 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 journey, what you're trying to do in the world. The first one in Peace Corps, and then and the second one, unlocking their potential. It, it does go with the first one. You were still looking at you know Bolo's potential. It was just going to stay, you know, his potential wasn't going to reach its full fruit because of all of his his circumstances and you were able to see what, how you showed up differently for the people in Pakistan, help them rise. I, I, so both those stories to me are, are very linked. And, uh, and I'm curious, some, so, you, so you've had to also, for the second story, you've had to change your own style to to help the others other people a lot be at their best you your you yourself had to change right how you were showing up yeah i think again it's sort of the the uh, the simple point really when you get down to it that different people respond to different mm -hmm. things well and so as a manager and as a leader to the extent you can gauge that and know your audience and understand what will help them uh, in some cases, uh, you the pushing harder and harder and harder is just counterproductive. And uh, if you take a couple steps back, some people like to be challenged. Some people like to be reassured about how great they are and how I know they can do it. Um, so it's really trying to be sensitive enough to that to figure out how you can best help somebody achieve uh, their full potential and a team do the same thing. I like that. And... And that for me links into um, you and I had been talking earlier about it, whether leadership had to change, if leadership has to show up differently in terms, in times of since COVID or during COVID. And you were telling me about how some ways that you realized you needed to shift what people needed from you. Um, so can you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, COVID was probably one of the hardest uh, management leadership challenges in my career. It was there was so it was so unknown. There was absolutely no playbook, and uh, here I am uh, trying to lead a global organization, two thousand staff spread across thirty countries. So much uncertainty, and uh, there was on the part of myself and my senior team a lot of angst. And we were here in in Washington with our head in our hands, sort of trying to figure out what was going on and what we needed to do. And uh, what happened was my colleagues around the world, uh, it's clear to me now, it wasn't so clear at the time, they uh, had lived and worked through a, a whole bunch of hard issues, uh, coup d'etats and, uh, and earthquakes and natural disasters and various things. And so for them, they spent about 15 or 20 minutes feeling angsty, and then they got on with the problem solving about how to make our programs work even when we couldn't be together because of COVID. And so a lot of my leadership during COVID was uh, was being was being leading from behind, as it were, and, and really admiring and supporting uh, our leaders around the world who were um, less angst-filled and, and more action-oriented and did a great job figuring out how we continue to deliver. We didn't close a single program and continue to work with these small farmers and entrepreneurs all over the world, uh, thanks to what they figured out. But the other learning for me 
in COVID was um, I had gotten feedback uh, that's, uh, that people want, said they wanted more inspiration from me as their global CEO. And uh, it was hard to know exactly what to do with that. And I consider myself kind of a private person. Um, but COVID, uh, we, we knew we needed to talk more about COVID. There was a lot of concern, a lot of new policies we had to roll out and all. And so I started having an open call uh, every week for 30 minutes. Everybody in the company was invited and you could come and ask me about anything. And it was an opportunity and, and the calls were enormously well attended. We'd have 150, 200 people on the call. And I think in some of those phones, you had seven or eight people sitting around a speakerphone in one of our field offices listening in. And um, it was a great opportunity to understand what was on people's mind, to try to be reassuring when that was appropriate, to talk about some of the new policies and new things we were doing to try to deal with COVID. And it was so popular that even as COVID has receded in importance for our business, we have kept up, I've kept up doing that and we've moved it to every other week, but every other week, there's a standing 30 minute meeting that the entire company's invited to and come ask the CEO anything. And it's been enormously popular and enormously rewarding for me. Um, I feel much more connected to people and I think they wanted to know what was on my mind, what I was working on, what I was worrying about. And uh, so uh, the ability to talk about that on a regular basis was a real gift. To then add on to that was that uh, the other thing I did during COVID was I did a virtual world tour. Mm. And I asked each of our country office heads to... Uh, bring together a group of about a dozen employees and make sure they were from different levels. Everybody from uh, drivers and cleaners to the country director to various project leads and, and uh, heads of accounting and so on. And um, we had an open-ended discussion for about an hour, I did in each of those 30 offices. And um, it was fascinating because I certainly asked them about how their work had changed and how they were responding to COVID, but I also asked them about what had changed in their communities and in their families. And it was really striking across wildly different cultures and different geographies, the, the commonality of the themes as, as people wrestled with uh, having their kids at home all day long and trying to uh, get work done at the same time. And uh, people who lost loved ones, people were incredibly frank and open with me, which uh, helped me be the same with them. And it was a real gift that they all gave me and something I, uh, I, I won't forget in a way that brought me, I think, uh, a lot closer to people. Uh, as a result. So there were a lot of hidden gifts in all the sadness and struggle in COVID for me. I just wrote down, I was I was thinking about you. Thank you for that, those three stories. And and I was like, what's the what what's the I don't know, what's the message or what do I see behind it? And I just wrote down, you know, it, it was sorry, I'm struggling here. Well the leading from behind it's like leadership, we think of it as like, I got to be in front, I got to be telling people what's going on, I got to show that I got got it going on, so they'll be safe, or, you know, they'll have confidence in me. But leading from behind isn't, like, it's a different take on that. Um, and so, again, coming to your theme of how you see what people need from you, and you adjust to that, that's a big adjustment because it's so I'm not necessary for you personally but it's that's so outside what this what people think that leaders what we think when we're leaders we're supposed to be doing um, and then being vulnerable and going to those calls and saying what you're worrying about or what's on your mind and um, letting your 
guard down, your hair down, the mask down, that is also not what is what we think we need to be doing when we're leaders. So I, I does that resonate with you at all? It does a lot. And I think the central tension, and I think about this, and when I talk, we, we run a program for some of our leaders, and I was talking to a group of them recently and talking about this, because I think people do want their leader to be uh, optimistic and resilient, uh, and they really want their leader to be authentic. And so you don't feel optimistic and resilient every day or in every, right. every, every situation. And trying to balance those two things and deliver on both of them is, uh, I think, uh, an interesting part of being uh, being a, str- a good leader. And and I know that for you personally, authentic le- leadership fascinates you. So what do you what fascinates you about authentic leadership? And what does that what does it mean to you also? What do you how do you define authentic leadership? Well, um, I mean, part of it is things that you do and focus on. I am a bit of a nerd and I have throughout my career been really obsessed with measuring impact. And that is much, much harder for us in the nonprofit sector than it is for for profit businesses. And so all of the staff know when I begin to talk about this issue, their eyes sort of roll because they know I can get going and talk about it for half the day if uh, if they let me. But so it's part of, I think, what you focus on, but it's part of being yourself. I mean, again, as a story I told uh, part of my team was that one of my mentors early on said to me, you know, if you're the leader and you walk down the hall of the office and you look worried and you're staring at your feet and everything, You've just made 10 people who noticed that. So, mm. and um, that's right. And what do you do with that? Some days you're going to feel worried. Some days you had a fight with your wife before you came to work or, uh, or, you know, you got to. Right. And so I think balancing all that and finding the right mix and the right ways to be authentic. There was a great article about Google and how to make teams effective at Google and psychological safety, which is a concept we put a lot of faith in here at TechnoServe as well. Um, but the story that they told us, this guy who revealed to his team that he had stage four cancer. And I thought to myself, God, is there no other way to get psychological safety than first you got to have stage four cancer and then you got to tell everybody about it. So um, it's finding the right sweet spot and balance for 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 you and your level of comfort with sharing personal information and all of that. And it's. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think I've I've been talking about authentic leadership recently. People have been mentioning it to me, and and what I worry about is I'm not sure what everybody's definition is, and what concerns me is it doesn't mean, but you know, you let it all hang out. You do have to find the sweet spot of where people still feel um, can feel trust that you got you've got it. Not that you have all the answers, but you're not on your knees um yeah they i mean well what yeah. you said earlier resonates i mean the leading from behind thing is interesting because they do want a leader who has a vision and has a plan and is competent and knows what he's doing um but they also want a leader to be uh, authentic i think part of it is finding the right organization you know for me I, it feels I joined TechnoServe nine years ago, and it feels like if you've worn a suit of clothes that's been a little too tight or a little too mm-hmm. baggy, this place and and the things that we care about here are a good fit, very good fit for me personally. Feels like the suit just fits perfectly. Mm-hmm. It's a comfort level there, and we're we're providing opportunities. As I said earlier, 
we're really into market-based solutions and 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 therefore lasting impact and that's really something i believe deeply in and i've really in various other parts of my career looked at the the power of business to to drive social change and so i think it's a part of being in an environment and being in an organization that aligns with your values and your interests as well as hopefully uh being thoughtful and kind of maturing about it as you get uh older and farther along in your career and probably aligns with your culture your values your culture the way that you feel comfortable i also want to just point out to you will it feels to me in the little bit that i know you you're willing to stretch yourself into un, to be stretched to stretch yourself into uncomfortable areas and that's that's been working for you Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And uh, I think it keeps us alive. I mean, I was with one of my mentors recently. He's just turned 80 and he's uh, starting all these new things. He's taken up sculpture at age 80. Mm. And uh, he was a venture capitalist back in the day, but he's a pretty good sculptor, actually. And, um, you know, he, he he's consciously sort of reinventing and taking on new things. I really admire him for that and try to, in some ways, emulate that myself. I want to do sculpture, take up sculpture when I'm 82. That sounds really lovely. <laughs> yeah, I was. Uh, uh, I was that sounds good. Let's make a note of that. I'll check in with you when you're 80. I'll meet you in about 20 years. <laughs> and locally led development. Let's touch on that. I know you and I talked about that. Obviously, this is a topic many, many NGOs and leaders are working on, um, thinking about, and so talk about what TechnoServe, where you are and where you think you might be going. Yeah, it's good to see this issue getting the attention it deserves. And it's good to see people discussing and I think understanding a, a lot of the problems with the more traditional, more, if you want to say, colonial sort of models of development. I think TechnoServe plays a nice role as being uh, an intermediary between civil society and business. And in that sense, um, our work is increasingly as much about uh, crowding in and facilitating as it is uh, about doing. And so um, when because we're providing market-based solutions that help people solve problems in truly commercial ways, uh, if we do that correctly, then the need for us goes away. When those people gain those skills and gain those market connections, they can continue to be more prosperous and be earning more money long after we go away. And so the idea is to have an analysis of, of that uh, value chain or that ecosystem, understand where there are market failures and what needs to be done to address those where are the strong local players and where does some capacity need to be built, but all with a view to improving the value chain of the ecosystem to the extent to which these solutions will last over time and continue to deliver results. And I think when we're helping people gain skills, they're skills that are transferable. We may help them grow coffee and earn money that way, but they've understood their farm as a business. And so if later on it becomes smarter for them to be doing avocados, they'll be able to make that pivot. Mm able to do the math and understand that. And that to me is then a, a real uh, something we, we've given them a gift nobody can take away from them and that will serve them the rest of their lives. And uh, so that ultimately, ultimately those local solutions, we can facilitate them. But uh, if our role is more than a temporary facilitator, we're doing it wrong. And I think that's that's where a lot of this debate is going. And, and we certainly welcome it because we think that's 
really the highest value for a group like us to be able to deliver. Very, very good to hear. I'm glad that you shared that. Will, is there anything that we haven't talked about that you about leadership or TechnoServe or your or your own story that you like to touch on? Well, Lynn, uh, again, this is another area where my staff roll their eyes. I'll be very brief about it. I just am frustrated as, a, as someone who's devoted his career to development for a long time. I'm frustrated at how little data we have and how little we mm. really know about the kinds of development programs which do provide lasting impact. Um, and we have invested in research that goes on five years after the end of a project to be able to see whether the gains that were documented at the end of the project, have they persisted? Have they gotten better? Have they gone away? Um, and uh, if you think about it, that's really common sense. Everybody wants to teach a person to fish, not give fish away. That's accepted wisdom. But we have almost no data about uh, about mm. what, what produces those long-term impacts. And it's part of my belief system that if you can get the private sector involved and if you can get people doing commercial things that really make sense, that don't depend on a subsidy or a free giveaway, but are truly commercial, those will last and those will scale up over time. But whatever your theory is there, there needs to be much, much more data generated about what is successfully lasting and what isn't. And we would be, we would be better spending all the $8 we spend if we had more data about that. So my entreaty to groups like USAID and the Gates Foundation is to fund that sort of research so we have a growing uh, evidence base so we can direct resources to to uh, activities that result in long-term impact. And um, I am pretty sure you're not the only one. And it seems like I've been in this sector for, you know, a while, all my adult life. And it seems like that should have happened a long time ago. So Rhetorically, people are there, yeah. but in reality, not enough, almost nothing is being done. There's a couple of groups. Plan International is another group that does a lot of this so-called ex-post evaluation mm -hmm. going back years after a project ended. Great credit to them, and, and we need a lot more of that. All right. Thank you, Will. Thank you so much for coming and spending the time with us, for taking time out of your day. I have so appreciated it, and uh, yeah, thanks for being with us. Thank you, Lynn. My pleasure. And thanks to everybody for watching this episode and please watch for the next one. See you later. Bye.